Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing ESG and Technology podcast series. Though, as you will see, we may have to rename this episode Innovation in Investing Sustainability and Technology. Today, Professor Tansi Whelan, founding director of NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business, is kind enough to join. For context, NYU is one of my alma maters, and I'm on the Michael Price Student Investment Fund Management Advisory Council, so it is dear to my heart. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. This episode will be about innovation in investing, particularly with respect to sustainability, which we, we would say is effectively synonymous with ESG, but Tansi may beg to differ. Asset managers and asset owners, as well as companies, should be able to extract a great deal of value from Tansi's work. Tansi and I were both speaking at an institutional investor conference with world-leading academic thought leaders, investors, and practitioners, and her work was the most memorable of the entire day of speakers from my perspective, and, and that's why uh, she's with us today. Uh, we'll start with some background color, then discuss how companies, managers, and asset owners may apply her work to investing, and finish with some advice. On that note, welcome, Tansi. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's start very briefly with your background and how you got to NYU. So I'm actually a NYU grad, undergraduate from the College of Arts and Sciences way back in the day. But after that, I went to work overseas. Um, I got my master's in international communication, and then I um, worked overseas on environment development issues in uh, Central America, whereas I worked as a journalist on environment development. And then in Sweden, where I was the editor of an international environmental journal that the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences puts out. And then from there, I um, came back to the States and uh, worked for a variety of different um, environmental sustainable oriented organizations, the latest being Rainforest Alliance, which I ran for 15 years and built it in from a $4 million organization to a $50 million organization working in 60 countries around the world on sustainable production and consumption, working with you know, thousands of companies. And from there, I came to Stern to found the Center for Sustainable Business. And our focus at the center is on helping current and future business leaders embed sustainability core to business strategy to drive better financial performance as well as better societal performance. And we work on educational programs as well as research and thought leadership. And I've already made one joke about it, probably a bad one, but why why sustainability and not ESG? And I'm not being critical, just, just for the listeners and, and my own edification. Absolutely. So if we think about sustainability, and really the first definition is back in, from 1987 with the Grow Brundtland Commission, a UN commission, but really sustainability is always looked at how do you harmonize triple bottom line? How do you ensure that you are providing good jobs, taking care of people, um, taking care of the planet, as well as ensuring profitability? Interestingly, environmental, social, and governance, which was also really started um, some years later with sort of a conversation at the UN Global Compact, is really about a system of measurement, right? What are the metrics associated with the E, the S, and the G? Um, and profitability is not in there, right? It's sort of assumed. But I think that's a challenge because ESG has become divorced from financial returns when actually they need to be related. And sustainability actually does that. And I think as well, 
because ESG is really about metrics and reporting and disclosure, people confuse it with performance that sustainability can drive um, when really it's a reporting and disclosure framework. So that's that's my feedback on ESG versus sustainability. Glad Excellent. That's very helpful. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so maybe you, a great starting point would be um, if you could discuss it at a high level your, um, you know, the return on sustainability framework you created. Yeah. So one of the things that I got interested in my work at Rainforest Alliance was how I kept seeing sort of financial benefit as a result of these investments in sustainability, ranging from, you know, when you had certification of coffee, you no longer had all the coffee falling back, falling off the back of the truck. So the insurance um, broker was actually uh, giving lower costs, lower premiums to the coffee companies because they were losing less coffee to you know, uh, producers seeing higher productivity and higher quality product to obviously the brands seeing benefit uh, in terms of consumer demand and reduced risk. So a whole series of different um, benefits that we saw came to Stern, developed a methodology called ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment, identified nine mediating factors that drive better financial performance when you embed sustainability core to your business strategy. Um, and those nine mediating factors include everything from innovation and growth, to operational efficiency, to employee engagement and retention, to supplier resiliency, to cu customer and sales benefits, um, risk innovation, risk uh, mitigation benefits, and so on. Um, and we've been working with this framework in a variety of different industries, ranging from food and agriculture with companies like Mars and McDonald's, to automotive with companies like GM, with clothing companies like Eileen Fisher and Reformation and REI, to utilities, to pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, um, really testing and understanding these drivers. And final point I would make, Michael, is that as we look at these nine mediating factors, any kind of good management can drive more innovation or more employee engagement or lower risk, right? But what's interesting about sustainability is it really is emerging as that next wave of total quality management, that a series of different practices that you put in place can drive several benefits, you know, like operational efficiency, like innovation and sales, like employee engagement and retention. Interesting. Maybe you could give us a real world corporate example um, quantifying the benefit of sustainability, you know, at, at a high level, obviously I've seen some of this visually, but, but obviously this is a podcast audio only. So, but, but maybe with some, you know, striking figures and, and that sure. will make it clear to, to listeners. So we look at a variety of different factors. Operational efficiency is one of the ones that I'm most interested in, right? Because companies, um, are, purchasing more than they need to pay to dispose of what's left over, which is the ultimate in an operational inefficiency. And yet most companies look at it as a compliance issue and not as something that they could invest to scale up and improve performance around. And a big part of that is because companies are actually not tracking these things. CFOs do not track avoided cost, for example. They don't track returns back to the original sustainability strategy. So I'll give you a couple of examples out of the work that we did in the automotive sector. For one company, we found that their investment in waste management strategies, which included things like recycling paint and solvents, resulted in annual net benefit to their bottom line of $235 million annually. And that's because, for example, with recycling paint and solvent, you no longer buy the virgin product, you no longer pay the waste disposal cost, and actually you have some leftover that you sell. 
right? So really significant benefit. Another end of life recycling of automotive vehicles is required in the European Union. So for one company, they were reusing 2.5% of the used vehicle and selling 10% of it to recyclers and then paying to dispose of the of the rest. They were netting $100 million per year as a result of that program, which they did not know because they were looking at it as a cost of compliance. But when in fact, by inserting that 2.5% of used product, they were um, had significant avoided financial costs associated with that. And that's another finding related to operational efficiency that we've seen is that CFOs typically do not track avoided cost. And yet that's a really big part of circularity and um, waste management strategies in terms of how much there really is significant cost savings. And I can give you um, one more example, uh, if I haven't run out of time, which is around pharmaceuticals, right? We saw, we worked with a company that moved to a green chemistry formulation for one of their products, which resulted in an 80% across the board, pretty much reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, energy use, water use, waste generation, et cetera, which saved them about $1.5 million per year per hundred metric tons of product produced, which also enabled them to offer the product at a lower price, which helped them sort of increase their sales against what they had thought they would be getting. You know, really significant benefits in, in, in a variety of different ways for companies. And, and as a you know, portfolio manager and analyst for the last 30 years, I mean, when I hear numbers like that, sort of, let's say the one to 250, $235 million of, of, of I think, EBITDA you're referring to, but it, it almost doesn't matter for back of the envelope purposes. You know, if I just took even low auto multiple EV to EBITDA multiples of say five times, that sounds like a half a billion dollars to, you know, 1.2 billion plus or minus of value creation at a very low auto industry EV to EBITDA multiple. So, I mean, that's, that's immense, right? Yeah, it's huge. And, and I think this is a challenge is that companies really aren't in the mindset to go in and assess all this, you know, with the companies, even big, complicated, sophisticated companies, some of the data is there, but you got to really go in and find it. Nobody's set up to track it, which um, again, real challenge of divorcing ESG from, from, uh, you know, financial performance. Right. Totally. Do you have a sense as to what percent of companies are quantifying the return of their sustainability? A really small amount, um, you know, so they're doing a little bit, right? So I think most companies, of course, are tracking uh, increased sales related to sustainable products. But even there, we do research on consumer purchasing of sustainable products, actual purchasing versus surveys, because most of the work we see out there is surveys. And we've found that um, sustainably marketed products and consumer packaged goods are growing three times faster than conventional at a 28% premium. And yet we find that most companies really don't know that and think there's a green gap in terms of consumer purchasing, which there actually isn't. So really significant kind of lack of understanding by, by companies around this. So what we see is that companies do track a few things. They maybe track energy savings. They maybe track a bit around their sales, but looking at a broader set avoided costs related to waste management or looking at innovation that ties back to their sustainability strategy, looking at and monetizing risk mitigation related to, for example, supply chain resiliency. We saw during the pandemic that those companies that had um, worked on sustainability with their supply chain partners actually had more resiliency. They were had more transparency into their supply chain, had more of a relationship with their suppliers, were able to sort of help them and engage them and keep them going 
during that period, which was really, you know, tough for people. It's a whole series of benefits that because they're not tracking them, I think most companies, you know, really aren't making the right decisions and aren't putting in place, um, you know, sufficient, you know, mechanics to understand and track the data. So, and, and then that, that ties nicely into, you know, implementing sustainable um, KPIs. Um, seems obvious that companies should be, but my sense is they aren't largely, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So um, I wrote a piece for HBR talking about how ESG reporting is not the same thing as sustainability performance, right? Um, so when you look at um, some companies, they are being responsive and that they are reactive is probably a better word. They're looking to respond to various questionnaires, investors, um, NGOs, government, et cetera, around a set of ESG reporting metrics. So they run around saying, yeah, what are these 10 metrics, 20 metrics, 100 metrics I need to report to? Let me find some data, stick it in there and give it to them. As opposed to understanding what are your material, environmental, social, and governance issues for your industry, for your particular company, how do you take those and apply them to your um, business strategy? And then within your business strategy, what are your sustainability key performance indicators? Because the reporting metrics are all process and output based. In other words, a reporting metric in the apparel industry for chemicals asks you if you have a chemical management policy. That doesn't, whether or not you have a chemical management policy doesn't affect your financial performance or even your sustainability performance, frankly. If you have, however, let's say, developed a bio-based dye that reduces toxicity, energy use, and water use, and also creates competitive advantage because you can sell it to brands who are trying to deal with this challenge, right? You have a significant financial upside, but reporting metrics don't track that. So you need to have your own KPIs, which will help you understand, let's say you're an apparel company, you've got a major chemical waste management issue. What is your strategy to deal with that? Do you want to go in and develop a bio-based diet? Do you buy a company that develops that? Do you actually get a certification? Like, how do you handle it? And then how does that then result in a better performance for you as a company, either in terms of brand competitiveness or operational efficiencies or other things, right? And that is the difference between managing to reporting metrics versus managing to key performance indicators. Then you can map your key performance indicators against the reporting metrics that you'll be asked to report to. So it, it, I mean, again, it sort of, um, it comes back to, I mean, there are multiple challenges here. It's, it sounds like, um, understanding, um, identifying, quantifying, measuring. It, it sounds like there are a lot of challenges along the way. And, and that's why it's, it's not as broadly adopted as it, it, it as it could be or should be. It's a change management or transformation process, right? It's like digitalization. So you have to fly the plane while you're fixing it. <laughs> some companies are good at that and some are not, right? And some don't recognize that it's a, it's a basically a change management system. They think that they, have, they can tweak around the edges and fix it, but they can't. They actually need to embed it in the company and put in place the ways to, to manage it. And so that's what we need to see from companies who are gonna see significant positive benefits from it for themselves and also for society. And, and I mean, if I think about something we've discussed on multiple podcasts um, previously over the last few months, you know, like the red state, blue state politic, and like, this is not at all about that. Like, this is something anyone with a brain in, 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 in a, you know, in any state should be a proponent of, because at the end of the day, it's 
it's about profitability. It's it's making the world a better place while simultaneously generating profitability. What I what I call optimal ESG. So you know, it's it's not about exclusion or it's it's about um, you know making the world a better place whilst with 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 no downside and or being more profitable. So it 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 seems like the proverbial free lunch, as we say in economics, right? It, it, I wish it were a free lunch. The challenge, as we talked a little bit about, is one, it's complicated. There aren't easy answers. You've got to figure out a whole new set of skills. And there may be some capital investments up front, right, that you need to make. So there is some of that. For, and some will do it better than others as well. Um, and that's just through their own competencies, not because the, the program is wrong or right. Uh, but I do agree with you that this is fundamentally about good management and good financial performance. And when done right, and that's what we need to help companies with is help them and investors help them really recognize and see how bringing, you know, appropriate sustainability strategies to bear in your company or in your investment strategy will help you perform better as well as, you know, take care of the environment and and people for your, your kids and grandkids to enjoy. Yeah. Okay. So I may have overstated it with the free lunch comment because there is some investment required, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not so sensitive to the, um, you know, management figuring it out and it's comp like, that that's what we, you know, management in in corp in the corporate world is is generally fairly well remunerated and yep. and for that they should be challenged and and be able to figure things like this out. So, you know, so I've seen a multitude of them as have you, and I know you've analyzed some or many of them, and I'll let you talk about that. But um, based on what I've seen, it's often a function of intentional or unintentional biases or factors. Um, you know, a great example is you know ESG funds that excluded energy this year. Um, and out, out overweighted supposedly ESG friendly technology companies, which which I think is highly debatable in of itself. But in any case, you know th they really just took two sector bets, right? They were short, effectively right. short one and long another, and both of those went the exact wrong way. Whereas during the pandemic, they largely they went the right, went the right way, right, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> and and so, you know what what are what are what are you finding from the research you've done on the studies in terms of ESG being positive? or a creative, dilutive, or neutral to uh, stock performance? So we we looked at a thousand plus academic studies that were published during 2015 and 2020, and we divided them between studies around the correlate. So these were all studies that looked at the correlation between ESG or sustainability and financial performance. We divided them between corporate studies and investor studies. For the corporate studies, 58% of them found a positive correlation between sustainability and corporate financial performance, about an 8% negative correlation. On the investor studies, 33% found alpha or a positive um, outperformance for ESG versus conventional. 26% found it performed at par and about 14% found a negative correlation. These, however, are correlations, not causality, right? Which is why we do the return on sustainability investment work. And also there's a lot of weaknesses in the approaches, a few of which you got to, right? So as we looked at the studies, we saw top, you know, one, one, positive, one helpful thing that we found is sort of when, they, when you looked at sort of the causality, what was driving better performance, was better risk management, more innovation and more operational efficiencies were kind of the themes that, that we saw pretty consistently. But particularly when you look at the investor side, massive kind of confusion around like different strategies. So you just mentioned one strategy, which is, you know, sort of um, overweighting on uh, tech and underweighting on um, fossil fuels. There are other strategies that are impact. You might have a thematic impact um, focus where you're investing in inclusive finance or renewable energy. 
right? Or you might have a um, solely a negative screen focus where you're only, uh, you're, you're not investing in tobacco and fossil fuels, but otherwise you're investing in anything and not necessarily in sort of ones with positive ESG factors. Right? So there's so many different strategies. And so what we see is a lot of confusion because the strategies will all perform differently and they're not really tested from an academic perspective in terms of what works better. And also, as you pointed out, the time frame in which they're working, depending on the broader macroeconomic trends, are going to have an impact. So what I look for because of all that, when I'm looking at you know, investors and how well they're going to um, fare, I look at companies like, for example, Generation, that has a very um, robust sort of theory of change in terms of what they're investing in, why they're investing in it. People understand the underlying dynamics of the different industries. They're using both a public and a private um, markets approach. Look at a company like um, Brown Sustainable Advisory Growth Fund, where, you know, again, they're looking at, so generation is more a thematic model, but also looking at, um, you know, so looking at mobility and um, uh, climate and technologies and things like that. Brown is looking at companies that are creating a competitive moat, basically based on the types of things that we're talking about, their own kind of internal management and improvement um, related to cost efficiencies, sales, et cetera, related to their um, sustainability embeddedness, or things like have they created technologies or opportunities B2B or B2C that um, from a sustainability perspective, give them um, you know, greater market share, you know, those types of things. And so there, it's a much more sophisticated approach than saying, I'm just going to remove fossil fuels, or I'm just going to pick the top 10% ESG performers based on um, MSCI's, uh, uh, you know, output-based metrics, right? Where I, you know, again, that can be useful, but I don't, that isn't what I would be paying an active manager for. I'd want them to really understand the underlying dynamics, not throw a bunch of numbers at this that we know well, the metrics aren't all that useful anyway. So what about, what about quantifying sustainability risk? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's one of the areas we've been looking at. It's really challenging, you know, uh, which doesn't mean we shouldn't be figuring it out. But um, it's challenging for a couple of different reasons. First of all, there's, there's so many different types of risk. And it, the risk is in different places in a company, right? It can be in their supply chain. It can be, it, it's all throughout, right, in different ways. Also. Um, there's very little analysis available around what the cost of not addressing a sustainability risk is. So let's say a risk for you is related to water. You have a number of factories operating in water risky areas where there's competition already between people, you know, the local villagers or whatever, and your water supply, you use manufacturing often, a lot of water. Um, and yet as a company, and we actually worked with a, we, we talked with a company who, who had this challenge, right? They were, had made commitments at a corporate level around reducing their water risk. But when they did the analysis of kind of their ROI on, and there was, there was technology available to actually reduce the amount of water used in their factories. Um, but their ROI analysis, which basically looked at the cost of water going in, the cost of wastewater going out, um, couldn't get them to the internal hurdle rate to make the investment in the technology that was needed. So they weren't going to make that investment. 
even though they had this risk, right? But they didn't look at all at kind of how you might monetize the risk. So we looked at with them at the fact that actually they had had a factory shut down in Sao Paulo some years earlier when we had the drought situation there. We actually had the numbers of how much that cost them, right, over the period of time that it was shut down. So we could assign a probability and a scale um, that they could use kind of, you know, they could use most conservative to least conservative analysis to incorporate. Um, and in addition, we looked at some other things they hadn't looked at, which is like, for example, you're using a lot of energy to move all that water around and to heat and cool it. They weren't including that. And they weren't including the fact that they paid a million dollars annually for a permit that would allow them to go over their water allocation. So when we looked all of that together, all of a sudden you see that, wow, there's a real risk here and a real opportunity. So there's now the financials make sense for us to make this investment. So, you know, we're looking at climate, we're looking at water, we're looking at a whole series, you know, reputational risk associated human rights in your supply chain, a whole series of things that, you know, while they've been around for a long time, it's only in the last five to 10 years that they've actually become material and companies don't have the skills to assess that. So CDP, which is an organization, Climate Disclosure Project, it was formerly known that um, collects and aggregates and anonymizes data from um, suppliers and uh, investors, portfolio companies um, do these surveys and they found that, you know, these companies that have like hundreds of billions of dollars of risk related to water, supply chain, climate, et cetera, are not spending the money they need to actually tackle it. And, um, and it's because they don't, I think, are, are um, sophisticated about assessing what the cost of not doing anything is. Right. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, um, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I spoke, for, you know, I, I spoke at an AICPA, um, the American Institute of Chartered Public Accountants conference uh, last, a few weeks ago. And um, it was on um, valuation and ESG and, you know, m- much, if not most of this stuff is not currently being captured in financial statements, right? Right. That's correct. Um, and, and it's and one of those things that the SEC is looking at, the EU is looking at. Yeah, but it's not. And and it needs to be, and it gets complicated, right? Because then you get into probabilities and discount rates and assumptions, and it's not as black a lot and of white assumptions. as what's that? A lot of assumptions, right? And it's yes. it's not black. It's not not as black and white as a revenue number or a cost number right. or right exactly. or, or a lease payment. And CFOs, understandably, because these numbers are really mushy. mushy. There are assumptions. Nobody has the answer. They're worried about their liability if they put out a number that turns out to be incorrect, even though they're doing it with best faith, right? Because nobody does have good numbers to create this. So this is, I mean, this is a real challenge. And I think an area where there needs to be a lot of focus to help I really help people come up with ways to better monetize risk. You alluded to the circular economy earlier. Just briefly, what are your views on that? You know, circular economy has all kinds of opportunities for us. I mean, if if you look at, and this goes back to sort of your our, our comments earlier, right? We our current economic development model is based on using natural resources and generating waste. When you look at economic development by country, you can see kind of a, a um, you know a, a um, what do you call it? Sort of on the axis where. Um, the numbers go up for natural resource use and waste generation, the more economically developed you are. Now we don't, we of course in the United States cannot be telling Bangladesh that they cannot develop more. Of course they should, right? Um, But 
if they and we continue to um, use all these natural resources and generate all this waste to drive economic development, we are on a downward slope to nowhere, right? So what we need to do is decouple economic development from natural resource use and waste generation. Um, there's an organization that looks at circularity that has identified, um, I think we use about 100, 100 metric tons. That doesn't sound right. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but um, we use an enormous amount of materials every year for all the production that we do. We're only reusing or recycling 10% of it. So there is 90% of materials that we are extracting and producing and doing something with. So have a lot of money in that are completely wasted. So figuring circularity is really about how do we you know, decouple that so we can have more economic development, decouple waste and natural resources through reusing, recycling, upcycling, sharing, et cetera, all this different material that we have out there. And I teach, as you know, I teach undergrads and graduates, and I can tell you that young people are really excited about circularity, about, you know, buying gently used clothing, about sharing vehicles, about doing things that actually lighten the footprint on the planet. And there's a lot of business opportunity in circularity. Just talking to a couple of students who've created a whole new business um, around uh, circularity related to reusable um, uh, uh, food service products, right? Um, that you have your food in in cafeterias and things. I mean, there's just so much business opportunity here, as well as an opportunity to ensure that we can have economic development for all, not just those of us who are lucky enough to live here. Totally makes sense. Um, all right, well, wrapping up the, the last two questions that are particularly relevant to companies, asset managers, and asset owners. The first one is, so what, what needs to be done by companies to improve sustainability? Well, so, uh, you know, first, I think companies need to start with understanding what are the material, environmental, social, and governance issues for them as a company and an industry. And the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is now becoming the International Standards Accounting Board, the Global Reporting Initiative, um, standards like that can help you understand what are the material issues that are really going to have potentially have an impact on your business. With those material issues, then really defining for yourselves where you sit, right? Where have you made good progress? Where do you have significant risk? Looking at your competitors to benchmark what they're doing on these topics, to understand who's best in class, and to understand for yourself, do you want to be in the middle of the pack? Do you want to be a lagger? Do you want to be a leader? You don't want to be a leader on everything, but where can you be a leader on one or two things or more if you feel like you have the appetite for it? to um, you know, create competitive advantage as well as um, you know, potentially operational efficiencies, employee retention, and all those types of things. Um, so I think really important to do that analysis first. Another big part of it is really reaching out to and doing stakeholder engagement um, to get their perspective on what are the material issues and where might there be the opportunities and risks you need to manage for. And that includes employees, it includes suppliers, it includes NGOs, it includes regulators. Um, and investors, of course, because what we see is that um, those uh, players often have unique insights for business that they're not able to see because they're too close to it, right? And can help them identify issues that might be coming down the pike. Maybe that's not something they need to deal with right now, but they need to understand it for later, or it might be a blind spot that they have where they could get attacked or have a really significant negative problem, right? Because they haven't really talked to people to understand it. So that would be another key area. And then from there, developing the key performance indicators, this cultural changes within the company, 
And that means governance, right? So on the governance front, do you have a committee of the board that's focused on these topics? Do you have board members that are trained in ESG? Um, do you have a compensation system that rewards uh, people not only on financial metrics, but also on your um, sustainability KPIs? Do you have, and we talked about this earlier, a capital allocation process that supports investment in this? Are you looking at things like maybe you need to put in place an in, a sort of internal price on carbon in order to be able to kind of manage where carbon pricing might go? You know, so a whole series of sort of um, governance issues, kind of strat strategic issues, culture issues. And then finally, of course, reporting and disclosure, right? As the last step, not the first step, um, to ensure that you're holding yourself accountable, that you're putting out good information that others, um, investors, uh, consumers and others can, um, and, and, and employees actually, because that's a really important piece of this is that I can tell you working with them every day that Generation Z and millennials want to work for companies that align with their values, right? Um, and if you want the best, that's what you're going to need to do. So these are all um, different elements of what companies can do to tackle this. Got it. And the last question, what, what should institutional investors or asset owners ask companies to avoid greenwashing and ensure investment in sustainable companies? Yeah. So are we thinking about institutional investors in terms of their asset managers or what asset what they should be asking their asset managers or what they should be asking corporates if they're doing direct steward? We were thinking, you know, what should asset owners like pensions or endowments foundations who have shares in companies, what, what should they be asking? So specifically their co the corporate stewardship as opposed to the asset managers. Okay. Yeah. So for the, for the, um, so if they've got direct investments and they're, they're engaging directly with corporates, I think they want to be asking them, for um, a materiality matrix, right? That shows the material issues that they're focused on and their stakeholder analysis. They wanna be asking for key performance indicators that are performance-based, not process-based. They wanna ask for transparent reporting against those performance metrics, as well as against the international standards for reporting. Um, and they want to, um, I think, be, uh, understand what the strategic imperative is of the company and how they're um, seeing this as either an incremental or radical change within their company and um, how that can benefit them and their suppliers, their customers, um, et cetera, from a rosy return on sustainability investment perspective. Because again, what we see investors doing is asking for ESG and financial metrics and not how the two relate. So I think they also need to be asking for them to undertake some type, doesn't have to be our return on sustainability investment methodology, but some way of assessing and understanding um, kind of what are the returns associated with your sustainability investments in a broad way. So looking at intangibles as well as tangibles, not in a very narrow way as, as that example of that company that I told you did. Um, so I think, you know, huge opportunities for investors. And then I would just add that as investors talk to asset managers, because mostly they're having their asset managers do all this work. Um, that they should be ensuring that their asset managers are not doing a tick the box approach to this. Cause I think a number of asset managers are managing just on like one or two kind of ESG metrics with some kind of negative screen and then some type of point system that they're assigning on kind of the ESG metrics that are out there as opposed to a really strategic um, kind of theory of change and understanding of the corporate of the dynamics related to sustainability and where the value drivers are, right? And where that potential upsides are and where the potential downsides are to stay away from those companies or at least you value them appropriately. So I think that's um, also an area where institutional investors can encourage asset managers to get more sophisticated than most of them currently are. 
That's great. I think that's great advice for, um, you know, for, for companies and for, for asset owners and asset managers. Well, look, Tansy, um, you know, we'd like to thank you for that superbly interesting discussion, sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Um, we hope listeners have a better appreciation of how, how one of the world's cutting edge sustainability academics and, and practitioners is thinking about quantifying sustainability and, and investors, or we as investors may benefit from that. Um, this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you can join us again for our next episode where we'll speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. Until then, stay well and thank you. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.